Heavenly Father, our hearts shout hallelujah today in view of the goodness, the grace that you have given to us, Lord. We are thankful today, thankful for the chance to hear these great songs of worship, Lord, for our hearts to be kindled anew, to serve you and love you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place, for each person who has come today. We are grateful, God, that you have brought us here. And now we pray, Lord, that whatever purpose you had in mind when you brought us to this place today, that it will be completely fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God is good all the time. time. What a great day of worship we have had already today and a great day to serve the Lord. Are you glad the rain has stopped for a while? Are you glad? I was thinking about a Sunday night recently when uh, we had one of those Houston monsoons and uh, some new guests to our church said they went down three different roads before they found one that they could actually pass to get here. They were coming from the east and it was just the roads were flooded back in these neighborhoods. And, and a friend of mine had come all the way from North Carolina. Actually, he was doing a, a wedding uh, up in Abilene area, but he was coming through here that night. And he said, man, I had a hard time just getting to your church. And I, we uh, worshiped together, and then after we went out to eat, and I said, so tell me about your parents-in-law. How are they doing? His, his father-in-law was a retired minister of music and a good friend of mine and just a great counselor and great minister. And he said, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, he said, Dwayne, now he's in his 80s, and he said, you know, not long ago he bought a moped. And um, he's been driving that moped everywhere, and he said, we thought that was a little odd. And then, then one night he said, I need you kids to come over. We need to talk. And so he said, we showed up there, and man, you wouldn't believe it. He takes us out in his garage, and he's got a huge Harley Davidson. And he said, I just want you to know, I bought a Harley Davidson. I'm going to start riding it. I know it's a little dangerous, but I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. And he said, we don't know what to make of that. And I said, it sounds like he's having fun. I wouldn't worry about it at all. I think it's, a, you know, it's your father-in-law. I mean, I think it's no big deal. And uh, so we were, we were talking, and I was thinking about that this week when I heard the story of the older gentleman who was riding his moped, and uh, he was stopped at a stoplight. And up next to him pulls a young man in a very fast Ferrari. And uh, the, the older gentleman looks at it, and he's kind of admiring it. And the younger guy has his window down. He says, you like my car? He said, yeah. He said, how much did you pay for it? He said, oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. He said, really? Why would you pay that much? He said, because it is very, very fast. He said, would you mind if I take a look? He said, no. So he kind of leans his moped over, and he's looking around. And it's really an amazing car. Right then, the light changes, and the uh, younger gentleman decides he's going to show this older gentleman just how fast that car will go. And so he just takes off, lickety-split, probably 120 miles per hour in the first 20 seconds and he's feeling pretty good about it. He said, man, I'm driving a fast car. And he looks in his side view mirror and there is a dot back there and it is closing fast. And he's like, what in the world is that? And whatever it is, just whips right past him and then comes back the other way and then comes back and runs into the back of his car and he, he gets out and it's the older gentleman on the moped who has passed him and gone back the other way and now come back and he says, man, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? He said, I'm fine. He said, can I do anything for you? And the older gentleman said, yes. Could you unhook my suspender from your side? view mirror. Well, here's the thing I want you to notice. The moral of this story is, the, the moral of this story is if you and I connect ourselves with the value system of the world around us, if we buy it wholesale, what we will discover is it can be a wild ride, but it usually ends with a crash. The Apostle Paul must have understood that when he had his final chance to talk face-to-face to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, a church that he had founded, and Luke records those words for us in Acts chapter 20, 
verses 32 to 35. Would you open your Bibles to that passage? Let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Uh, Tonight we're going to study the book of Ezra, as Randy said, and uh, we'll find out why we do what we're about to do. Let's stand in reverence for God and his word. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And Paul says to them, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul loved the church at Ephesus. He had an interesting ministry there. He ministered there for some time. He worked as a tent maker, we believe, while he was there with Priscilla and Aquila. And during that period of time, while he ministered to that church, he gave himself wholeheartedly to the church. He led many people to Christ. And remember, it was a transforming kind of ministry. In fact, there was a a great idolatry in that city of Ephesus. We went and visited there some years ago, back in 2000, and they were still selling little idols outside the gate of that ancient city that they've excavated. And, And while we were there, I just looked at that city, an amazing city and imagine the Apostle Paul walking into that city and then sort of leaving that town in a hurry because his ministry there had so transformed the city that nobody was buying idols anymore. Imagine a church so faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the city is literally changed. The values, the ethics, the intentions, the motives of the people in the city were transformed by the power of the grace of God. So the Apostle Paul leaves and he's coming back by there and he doesn't even have time to stop and spend the night. So he calls the leaders out to the port there to meet him and he speaks with them for a while. And he says to them, I no longer count my life as worth anything. This is a great life verse for ministers. There in verse 24. I don't count my life as worth anything. If only I may finish the race that God has given me and I may testify to the good news of God's grace. Now later in that same message, after he said to them, I'll probably never see you face to face again. And they're sad about that. Imagine if you were speaking to somebody you loved for the very last time face to face, what would you say? And he said to them, I want you to know I am giving you to God. After he says this, he will pray for them and literally do that. I am giving you to God and to the word of his grace because that grace is all you need. What's it going to do? He says, it's going to build you up. You're going to grow up spiritually. And he says, you're going to receive an inheritance among the sanctified. And just remember this, he says, when I was among you, I didn't want your stuff. I worked hard to meet my own needs so that we might be able to help those who are weak and by this same kind of work I want you to help those who are weak because Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive I read those words this week and it was like lightning struck I thought that is the exact opposite of what most people in our world believe most people believe that it is much happier that's what the word blessed means it's a much happier experience to get 
than to give. In fact, we spend a lot of our lives, don't we, seeking to get things. And the Apostle Paul said, just remember my example. Remember the words of Jesus Christ. Life is not ultimately about acquisition. It's not about acquiring more stuff. Life is about working hard so that we can meet our own needs, not our wants. That's not what he said. We can meet our own needs. And he says, so that we can help those who are weak. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it occurred to me, if you and I have not experienced that truth in our lives, that it is greatly more joyful to give than it is to get, then we need to practice giving more. Because when we give the way that the Apostle Paul is talking about, when we give to other people, when we help those who are weak, it brings enormous joy. Just this week I had a chance. I received something really good, a great gift. And I had a chance to give a gift to somebody this week, sort of um, not publicly, but just to give them a gift. And I cannot tell you, there's no comparison between the feeling. I loved what I got. But being able to give was such a greater privilege. And I want to teach that to us because they say in a recent survey of, of young people, 22 to 28 years old, they asked them, what is the one thing you need to get ahead in life? And they simply said, we need to learn to manage money better. Translate that into a Christian family where we're trying to make disciples together. This whole series of sermons, next week we'll complete it. This whole series of sermons is about how we make disciples in our homes. And if we fail to teach those who pass through our homes that life is more about giving to others than about getting for ourselves, we will have failed them in some way. God wants us to learn to give. And here's what happens. Three great things happen when you and I learn this principle. The first is God is absolutely glorified when you and I spend our lives giving our lives away. The second thing is other people are absolutely edified. They are built up. They are helped greatly. The weak are helped when you and I learn to do that. And here's the most important thing for us in our sort of hedonistic world we will be satisfied. He says, it is more blessed. You will receive more joy from giving than you have ever received from all the things that you have ever gotten put together. That is the grace of God to us. So here's the question I want to ask you. When you look at other people, in view of what God has done for you, do you want more from people or do you want more for people? That's an important question. In fact, the answer to that question will tell us a good bit about how deeply the grace of God has actually penetrated our lives. Because when God's grace is at work, this is what he says, I commit you, I commend you. Literally, it's like somebody handing a gift to somebody. He said, I am giving you a church filled with people that I love. I'm giving you to God. It reminds me of that great line in uh, Les Miserables when when the priest says to Jean Valjean, my brother, I have given you to God. I, 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 don't, I can't ultimately control your life, but I will give you to God. Have you, ever, have you ever said that to somebody you love? Have you ever prayed what Richard Foster calls that prayer of surrender? When you take your hands and you literally open them up and pry your fingers apart and you say, God, I am putting this person or this family or these friends or this loved one in your hands. God, I'm releasing them to you. You will do better with them than I could ever do. So I surrender them to you. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, when you and I realize that we have been given to God, not just given stuff by God, please, 
We have been given to God. We belong to God. And if we belong to God, listen, God belongs to us. And if God belongs to us, then why in the world would you and I ever want anything else from anybody else? Believe me when I say, if God is not enough for us, no thing in this world ever will be. But when we find deep contentment in relationship with God, when we realize, as he describes it, we've received this message of grace, God's unmerited favor, or the acronym God's riches at Christ's expense. When you know what you have, he says, this grace, this word of grace that's transforming you and building you up and giving you an inheritance. And by the way, the inheritance of heaven is not just getting there. The inheritance is God himself. God becomes our portion And when God is all that we have, we will find that God is all that we need. And our spiritual growth will will discover that God is all that we want in this world. And that gives us a deep contentment. And it all begins with the message of grace. Tim Keller was talking about a conversation with a new member of his congregation. And this uh, lady was disturbed by the message of grace. She had always thought you kind of work your way into relationship with God. Have you ever heard that? You know, if you just work really hard, God will be pleased with you. But the message of grace is the opposite. That's when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And, and she said, you're telling me I didn't earn any of my salvation? Tim Keller said, absolutely not. She said, that is really troubling. He said, why does that trouble you? And she said, because if it was partly based on what I do, then sort of like a taxpayer, I would feel entitled There would be limits on what God could expect from me if it had something to do with my works. If I partially earned my salvation, then there's a limit to what God could expect from me because I'm like a taxpayer. I would have my rights. But if you're telling me that my salvation is all about God's goodness given to me freely and I didn't deserve it and I didn't earn it, then she said, there's no limit to what God could ask from me. He could ask for my whole life. And Tim Keller said, Exactly. The God who gave us his whole life. That's the message of God's grace, verse 32. That's the message I commend you to when I pray for you and I release you and I surrender you to God. The message of God's grace is that God's so good and he is so much and he is such a great gift that nothing in this world, we are content in him. And what that means is, as Paul says in verse 33, then we don't covet other people's stuff. Why would we want somebody else's silver or gold, or clothing. We don't spend our lives. Listen, Christians are not those who stand around wanting what other people have. Can I say that again? Christians are not those who stand around wanting what other people have because we want more for people than we want from people. Just this morning, I was, um, I was making cinnamon rolls for our family. I do this every Sunday morning. I know you all think I make these things up, but I really do this. Every, I don't make them from scratch. I'm not going to get elaborate here, but I buy the, every week I buy a little roll of cinnamon rolls at the, at, you know, at the Randalls. And I, I, the first thing I do every Sunday morning, first thing I do, I, you know, I thank God that I'm alive. And the second thing I do is I go turn on the oven so that after I get ready, I can put the rolls in the oven. And I do this every week. And then, you know, after the rolls are ready, and after I've made my omelet for me and my beagle, I'm not making this up, then I ice the cinnamon rolls. You don't know anybody in this world who loves icing more than I do. I gotta tell you that. And so I'm icing these cinnamon rolls, 
And, and Melanie is always studying in another room. She's studying for her Sunday school lesson. She teaches seventh grade girls. That's her flock. She loves those kids. She's taught like 10 years of them now. She loves those kids. And she's in there studying, and I always hand deliver to her. Husbands, listen to me. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but this is what I do. I take her two cinnamon rolls. And as I was putting my cinnamon rolls on my plate and her cinnamon rolls on, my plate, on her plate, can I tell you something? I took the ones with the most icing and put them on my plate. Now, this is confession's good for the soul. And I put the ones with the second most icing on her plate because I love her better than the kids. And there's no joke about that. But then I started feeling bad because I knew I was going to preach this sermon. And I actually gave her the ones with the more icing this morning. Pray for me. God's grace needs to penetrate more deeply in my heart. Because when there's more icing, I want more icing. That's just the way I am. And maybe you're that way too. And I was reading Joe Stoll, who's a great pastor. I think he was uh, Ed and Nan Rose pastor up in Michigan one time. And uh, amazing, amazing preacher, president of Moody Bible Institute at one point. And he tells about how when he retired, he decided that he and his wife would move out in the outskirts of Chicago. And they picked out a lot and they built the house they'd always wanted. It wasn't elaborate, it wasn't extravagant, but it was beautiful to them. It was the dream house for them, the house they'd always wanted. They moved into it, he loved everything about it because he had designed it himself, perfect house. And he's driving down the street a couple months later and he sees another house house and he said man I wish I had that house and he said what is the deal why are we like that and then he traces it back all the way to Genesis to Eve and Adam God gives them the whole garden and they say yeah but we want that piece of fruit no you can have anything but that piece of fruit the whole garden is yours you can eat anything you want you can go anywhere you want just don't I want that piece of fruit they said because God was not enough for them And if you and I find ourselves constantly wanting what we don't have and wanting other people's stuff, let me just tell you, it means that God is not enough for us. And I don't think we believe that. So we need to let what we believe in our heads penetrate all the way down to our hearts so that we are people who are not always wanting other people's stuff. Christians are not those who want what other people have. Christians are those, he says in verses 34 and 35, who work so that we can meet our own needs, not our wants, but our needs. And who work so that we can help those who are weak. There is a great dignity in work that is lost on our culture. I read this week about the lady. Did you read about this lady who for the fourth time won the lottery? She bought two of those tickets at the same little store in her father's hometown here in Texas. Fourth time she's won $20.4 million in the lottery. When my kids hear things like that, when people hear that, they think, that's it. That's how you get rich. You just go by. Can I tell you how many hundreds of thousands of people lost money so that lady could win four times? I'm not trying to make her feel guilty about it. I'm just saying a lot of people lost money so that one person could win money. That is not God's economy. In fact, God's economy is the opposite of that. Instead of trying to to get the money that other people invest by being luckier than they are, we work really hard so that we can supply our own needs. I look at this congregation. I know you to be incredibly generous people. I know that you are people who have worked hard in your lifetime. I wake up every Sunday morning with the realization people say, oh, you you preach four times on Sundays and one time on Saturday. Listen, I don't work any harder than anybody else in this church works. You all work hard. And I want to be inspired by that to work hard as well. And Paul says again and again in his letters. I was reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, verse 9. And he says, I worked night and day the whole time that I was among you. Because I wanted to be able to give you the gospel free of charge. Paul said, I I made tents so that you would never say, hey, you were just trying to get our stuff. Paul said, that's why I worked so hard. And we should be inspired by that. 
I think about those three little boys who are playing on the playground and one little boy says, you know, my dad's amazing. He scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem. They give him $50 for that. The other boy says, that's nothing. My dad, he writes a few words on a piece of paper, puts it to music. They give him $100 for that. They call it a song and they give him $100 for that. The other boy says, I've got both of you beat. My dad writes a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon. He stands up and delivers it. It takes eight people to collect all the money. It is amazing. (laughs) I sometimes wonder what my kids think I actually do, you know? They see me leave early in the morning. They see me come home late at night. They see me and they say, you know, I might, you know he just stands up and talks a couple times a week. And we have a house. We have cars. We have, you know, it's amazing. And I just want to say to you that our work is to work, to work hard, to give ourselves fully. And why? Because when we do, we're not doing it. Here's the, a friend of mine starting a new business. And somebody said to him, your business will not succeed unless you have a why for doing that business. Can I ask you, why do you do your work? You say, well, I want to be productive. I want to add more to the company than I take away. I want to, why, but why? If the answer is, because I just want to get opulently wealthy. I had a friend in ministry one time. He said, I want to work till I'm 35. I don't know many ministers who've been able to do this, Randy, but I want to work till I'm 35. And then he said, I just want to play golf the rest of my life. Really? I said, that's it? Yeah, he said, that would be my goal in life. I was like, man, you need to check that with the scriptures because I don't think that's why we were put here. Not so we can work a little bit, so we can get really wealthy, so we don't have to do anything else. We're supposed to meet our own needs, he says, and even the needs of others. And then he says, we do all this so that we can help other people because we want more for others than we want for ourselves. Paul wanted them to have the gospel. He wanted them to have grace. So he worked hard so he could help those who are weak. One of my friends who's uh, kind of between jobs right now is an incredibly talented, brilliant businessman. And he says to me that he and his family went out to a camp in, in Colorado. And while they're at this camp, Um, They don't have to do anything. You know, it it can be a time to relax. But while they're there, they've got all these kids from the inner city and kids from the suburbs. And they're there and they're teaching these kids about Jesus. And one of the things they do is they climb up a mountain that is 13,000 feet high, which, by the way, is very high. And they're starting at about 9,000 feet. And they're taking all the kids with them. And, you know, some of the kids, you know how it is in a crowd of kids. Some of the kids, they can't wait to climb up that hill. I mean, you know, they're running. You know, they're, they're ready to go up the mountain. But some of the boys, you know, they play football. They're linemen. Linemen are not designed to climb 13,000 foot mountains. You know, they've been eaten so they can get big and strong so they can push people off the line. And now they're saying, hey, come with us. We're going to climb a 13,000. He said, this boy made it about 100 yards and he was huffing and puffing and said, there is no way in this world that I'm climbing that hill. And my friend said, you know what? I made it my mission. Me and another guy, we two together said, we're going to get you up that mountain. So it took four hours. He was the last one to get to the top. But we made it all, he said, at points we had him, he was just draped over us and we were just virtually carrying him up this mountain. But we were determined to help him get to the top of the mountain. And then he said, you know what, as a, as a vice president of sales, I can do this for the rest of my life in my business. I can take young salesmen and mentor them because they say, I'll never get up that mountain. But I'm going to help him get up the mountain. I thought, he's got a reason for his work, doesn't he? He's got a reason for doing what he does what is your reason for doing what you do if it's not to help the weak I know it's sort of in vogue these days to sort of say what's mine is mine and I need to keep it that's a that's the attitude by the way of the uh the priest and the Levite in the story of um of the um the man who's loses everything beside the road um the good Samaritan story that the priest and the Levite say what's mine is mine and I'll keep it but there is after all a Samaritan who says what's mine is yours and I'll give it to you if you need it 
Help the weak, he says. What do we do with that as Christians? I know that's not part of our culture, but it's part of our Bible. What are we going to do with it? We're supposed to help those who are weak. And it's never too early to teach those kids. One man, Dave Ramsey, who talks about money a lot, says, if we don't teach kids about, about saving and spending and giving and working, if kids don't connect work with money before they're the age of 10, they're going to have problems with that later in life. If they think life's about winning the lottery or somebody's going to give them something because they're entitled or money just grows on trees, as my parents used to say, and my kids have kept that uh, alive uh, for another generation. If kids think that and they don't connect it with work, that's going to be a problem for them down the road. We teach our kids to work, and it's never too early for them to begin. I read this week about a, a young man named Jackson Rogers who, before he was 10 years old, built his first house. Have you heard this story? He always wanted to give a house to people who didn't have a house. And his pastor, one Sunday morning, gave $100 to members of the church and said, use this to help somebody in some significant way and then come back and tell the church how you did it. It was like a children's sermon. The pastor gave these kids 100 bucks a piece. Amazing kind of story. Jackson said, you know, I always wanted to help somebody build a house, but you can't build a house with $100. He and his dad talked about it for a couple months. They decided to buy stationery and stamps. They sent letters to 200 people and asked them to help them. It cost 50000 through Habitat for Humanity to build a house. 170 people responded, gave $43,000. The church said, we'll spot you the other 7000 And they built a house for a family. It was interesting to hear that family. And they said, we had no idea that our house was actually, it's here because a little boy took $100 and did something with it to help other people. What would the average kid do with $100 if they had it? I mean, how many Nintendo games would they buy? I mean, well, you know, how many, I mean, what, but no, this little boy said, I can use this to help other people. I know what you're thinking. Why doesn't our pastor ever do things like that? (laughs) But my word to you is what I say to my kids, use your own money. You'll feel better about it after you do. Start with what you have. What did God say to Moses? What's that in your hand, Moses? What's that in your hand? Use that for the glory of God because our world is filled with people who are in need. And those who learn to give sacrificially and help others with it are some of the happiest people in the world that we live in because as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Dave Ray, one of our our ministers was over in the Sudan with his wife. They were ministering there. And um, while they were there, they stayed with, um, they stayed with uh, uh, a pastor and his wife. And the wife's name was Asanita. And later in the week, she said to him, we want to do something for you. We want to give you a chicken. And David's thinking, what am I going to do with the chicken? Well, they didn't give it to him as a pet. They were going to cook the chicken. I don't know how you feel about it. It's hard to eat a chicken once you've known the chicken. But anyway, the chicken was given to him. And he said, you know, the amazing thing, Dwayne, was they only had six. But they gave one of their chickens to us that week. And he said, I started thinking, how much would I have to give to give like that? To give one-sixth of what I have. How would I, how much, how would I do that? And we just sat there. We were in worship playing this week talking about this. And I, I thought, what would cause a person to do that? But then I remembered, oh yeah, Asanita and her husband, they're disciples. And the thing I've noticed about disciples, learners, followers of Jesus Christ, is disciples share. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your amazing, amazing love, for the way that you care for us and watch over us. 
Lord God, I pray that you would help us today to receive your unspeakable gift and to use that gift for your greater glory. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.